This morning we're going to be looking in Luke chapter 9. We're going to be finishing, actually, Luke chapter 9 this morning. Looking at verses 51 through the end of the chapter. As you're turning there, I want to ask you a few questions. First of all, have you ever encountered someone in your life that's just difficult to deal with? Any of you? Maybe? I mean, uh, as you think about that person, like no matter what you say, they just won't reason with you. They don't want to compromise. They don't want to give. We like give, right? Unless it's us giving, right? We maybe like those people, but we don't want to deal with those people. They can make us uncomfortable. We want compromise. We want to deal with people who at least will give a little bit, who seem reasonable. We want to feel like we have a say in things. And when we don't have a say in things, we don't like that. We don't feel comfortable. and So we don't like being around unreasonable people. But let me ask you, as you consider that, how does that affect your view of Jesus? Is Jesus reasonable? And if so, what makes you think that he is reasonable? I think our feelings about those who are unreasonable can negatively affect our understanding of Scripture and ultimately the cost of discipleship. And so in the text that we look at today, we see Jesus responding to three would-be followers of him and their conditions for following. They want to reason with him. And also we see that he reveals that their and our determination must reflect his own determination. And so let's look to the text together. If you'd stand with me, I'm going to read beginning with verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, your body, Lord, your people, we come thankful. We're grateful, Lord, for your word. You have, you have poured out your grace upon us, and one of the ways you have graced us is by giving your word, Lord. You have spoken You've spoken to us. You've written it down and you've given it to us. And so we ask for your help in this time. We need your help. I need your help, Lord. I pray that you would bless us with hearts that are attentive to you, Lord, that we would 
receive your word into our hearts, that we would embrace it with our lives, Lord, because we want to glorify you. And so help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's a critical verse in the book of Luke. It's actually the turning point in the book of Luke. Up to this point, we've seen about two and a half years of Jesus' ministry take place. Um, And you consider the beginning of Luke with his birth. We've seen uh, his whole life, excluding the last six months. And here in Luke 9, Luke makes it a point to say he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And this is a turning point. From this point forward, we have the last six months of Jesus' life, and it will be, he set his face to Jerusalem. He is going to Jerusalem. He is headed to Jerusalem. At this point, his face is set, and from here forward, for the rest of the book of Luke, that's what we will be following along with. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. There's a uh, determination in Jesus at this point. Luke writes, when the days drew near for him to be taken up. What does he mean by taken up? We tend as Christians to focus solely on what Jesus did when he uh, got to Jerusalem. What took place in Jerusalem, his death and his resurrection. And those are crucial, those are important things, those are things we rejoice in. But it helps us to understand, as he says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he he set his face to go to Jerusalem. It helps us to understand the motivation of Jesus or for Jesus. God's purpose for Jesus will soon be realized. He will ascend to the right hand of the Father. He will be at the right hand of his Father. And so he's determined The path to ascension for Jesus is through Jerusalem. Hebrews 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. The joy that was set before him, he endures the cross, despising the shame. He knows the joy that is to come. He knows what's after the crucifixion. He knows what's after the resurrection. And his mind and his heart and his face is set to that end. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. He sets his face toward what accomplishes the work he came to do, which culminates in him being taken up in his ascension. In fact, in Luke 22, verse 69, he's before the council. He's been arrested. He's before the council, before his death. He says to them, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. The joy that was set before him. He sets his face toward Jerusalem. And so Paul writes to Timothy, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. The determination in him 
verses 52 and 53, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. You can imagine whether it's just the apostles and Jesus and a few others or the crowds with Jesus, for them to go into any village would be an inconvenience or a burden on the people as he's going there and needing preparations to sleep, preparations to eat. It would be a burden on the people if they didn't know that he and these people were coming. And so he sends messengers ahead to let the Samaritans in this village know that he's coming so that preparation can be made. But they will not receive him, it says. The people, the Samaritans, did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. We have to remember the Samaritans despised the Jews, hated them. The bitter rivalry and their feud with them was so bitter that they would not help anyone traveling to Jerusalem. You're headed to Jerusalem, don't come here. We're not going to help you get to Jerusalem. We're not going to help you on your way. And so here, as they seek preparations, it's not that the Samaritans are rejecting Jesus as Savior and Lord. We read that uh, phrase, they rejected him, and we may be thinking, well, they rejected him, or they did not receive him as Savior and Lord, but they don't really know about him as Savior and Lord. They don't know those things. They're just rejecting someone who's coming through, who's on the way to Jerusalem, and they're not going to have any part of him getting there. They're rejecting him because of where he's headed, and his face is set toward Jerusalem. Verse 54 And when his disciples, James and John, brothers, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's zeal. I mean, there's zeal there that they have for the Lord, right? I mean, they, they, this is their Lord. This is their Savior. We're not going to have, we're going to have people rejecting the Lord and certainly these low-life Samaritans. We're not, we're not going to, we're going to stand for this. So we got your back, Jesus. We got you covered. You want us to call down fire from heaven and consume these people? Amazing thought. The idea certainly calling down fire from heaven is something that they would have remembered from Elijah something that Elijah did in the same region. In fact, 2 Kings chapter 1 gives us the account. 2 Kings chapter 1, beginning with verse 9, King Ahaziah is after Elijah. He's coming to take him and have people take him and bring Elijah to himself. Verse 9, then the king sent to him, Elijah, a captain of 50 men with his 50. So we have 51 soldiers that are going to get Elijah. And he went, up, he went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again, the king sent to him another captain of 50 men and with his 50. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Can you imagine? 
You would think any king with any compassion for his people at that point would say, enough is probably enough, right? Not Ahaziah. 13, again, the king sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50, and the third captain of the 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 men with their 50s, but now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with them, with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. Such a wonderful picture of humility in that last group. They humbly come before Elijah pleading, let my life be precious to you. This is what certainly James and John have in mind as they are asking Jesus, do you want us to do the same We can annihilate this whole village. We can take out these Samaritans. I'll call fire down from heaven and consume them just like Elijah did with those soldiers. Verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them. Jesus turns to them and rebukes them. It is not gospel ministry to want to destroy those who reject the word of the Lord. That is not gospel ministry. Paul said in Romans 9, of those who rejected Christ, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Our desire, Paul's desire, is not that they be annihilated. It's that they be saved. It's that they come to know the Savior. Jesus, the one we follow, came to seek and save the lost. John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Gospel ministry does not say, let's kill those, let's destroy those who deny the word of the the Lord. Gospel ministry says, Let's have hearts like Paul. Let's have hearts like Jesus. Jesus is merciful and he demonstrates mercy toward the Samaritans. Let me ask you, should he allow the disciples to call fire down upon them? Should Jesus allow fire to come down and consume the Samaritans? And then, should he himself call fire from heaven on the apostles who are clamoring for worldly greatness and will abandon him, deny him? And should he call fire from heaven on me for hearing and too often not obeying his word? The answer to those questions is yes. He should He is just. He is holy. He is set apart. He is worthy. And we are unrighteous. We are unholy. We are wretched sinners. He should. But instead, he will call fire down on himself 
fire from heaven upon himself. Matthew 5, verse 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And that is truth. We're called to display the mercy that we see here in this text, the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And blessed, Jesus says, are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That is absolute, 100% truth, except for one person. The most merciful man who ever walked the face of the earth did not receive mercy. He didn't call fire from heaven on the Samaritans or on us. He called fire from heaven on himself. And on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He himself has set his face toward Jerusalem. He heads towards Jerusalem to be killed, but he forbids the killing of the Samaritans who rejected him. That is absolute mercy. If you came this morning, you're a mom, and you're looking for a Mother's Day sermon, that is it. Jesus is merciful. He is merciful. So receive his mercy. Embrace his mercy as a mother who has fallen and failing and, and tripping and stumbling and striving after him. He is merciful toward you. And then display that mercy as a mother a mercy that looks upon children who are deserving of wrath and gives mercy because they are desperate for it, just as we are. Jesus is merciful. Verse 56, they went on to another village. At this point, Luke transitions. He mentions three would-be disciples who... Jesus' response to shows that they lack in their desire to follow him. Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem, and those who follow must deny themselves and take up their own cross and follow him. For Jesus, the path of glory goes through Jerusalem, and likewise, we're not just called to bear witness of him, we're called to bear witness like him to display him. So those who follow must follow the suffering servant. As they went along, as they were going along, verse 57, the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. As he's going along, probably uh, someone from this crowd cries out to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. That's a phenomenal statement, right? And what it conjures up memories of someone from the Old Testament. Who is it? I will follow you wherever you go. Ruth, Ruth chapter one, we get to verses 16 and 17 and we're like, this is amazing. I will go wherever you go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And we're like, this is amazing. This is faith. This is discipleship. This is a great statement. I will follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. For all of these encounters, as we look at the response of Jesus, we may be reading it and thinking, 
This seems reasonable, Jesus. <laughs> the requests seem reasonable. And we may push back a bit and even think, aren't you being unreasonable, Jesus? Jesus here is turning back would-be followers who are half-hearted. He's speaking these words on his way to Jerusalem. This is the cost of following a Savior who goes to the cross. So what's he saying here? Someone comes to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What's he saying? The way is hard. The way is hard that leads to life. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This is our Savior. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and his followers should expect the same. It's what Jesus says when he sends out the disciples in Matthew 10. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So, Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And then in verse 25, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? Some people want the benefits of following Jesus, but not the sacrifice that comes with it. The Lord knew, knew this man's heart. and He knows that self-denial is an obstacle to him. He mentions these animals saying they have homes. They have a place that they return to day after day after day. They have a home. But not so the Son of Man. The Son of Man is rejected. Even at his birth, right? There's no place for him. No place for him in the end. Even in his birth and his life, that's his life. These Samaritans have just rejected him. They've, they've cast him out. There's no place for you here. The Gadarenes, as Jesus performs this great miracle delivering this man who had tortured this this village. What do the people of the village say? Go, we don't want you here. There's no place for you here. Jesus is saying to this man, the way is hard. The way is hard. This disciple must consider the cost of following. He must consider the struggle to come. It's the way of the cross that leads to glory for Christ and for his followers. Goes on beginning in verse 59 to another 
He said, follow me. So now Jesus is speaking, calling out someone, maybe in that big crowd that's been following them. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Seems reasonable, Jesus. It seems like something you would commend, that this man would go to bury his father and then follow you. It's difficult to determine the situation for this man. Some believe that the man's father is dead already, that he literally needs to go back and bury him. Some believe that the man is saying that he wants to go back and tend to his parents, take care of them until they are dead, and then he will be freed up to follow. Jewish custom dictated that burial would take place soon after death. It was a son's duty to make sure that his father was properly cared for in death. So what is Jesus saying here? What Jesus is saying is whether the father is dead or not yet, let the spiritually dead care for the physically dead. This man wanted to wait. Maybe he wants to wait so he doesn't lose his inheritance. Maybe he just wants to wait so he's more freed up in life. Maybe it's because of the cultural or family expectations placed upon him. He wants to wait. We tend to be like that. We say things similar to this. As soon as I finish high school, then I'm going to be devoted everything. As soon as college is over and I'm freed up, there's so much studying and so much work and so much social interaction and so many things. As soon as as I'm done with college, Lord, then it's it's full (coughs) devotion I'm denying myself. I'm taking up my cross and I'm following you from from graduation forward. It's us. As soon as I get married, as soon as I find a wife, as soon as I find a husband, then the two of us, I'll find a godly wife, I'll find a godly husband, then, Lord, then determination. Setting my face towards you. I'm following you. It's all yours, Lord. Lord, As soon as the children come, as soon as we have kids, we'll want to raise our kids in the church. We want our kids to know about you. As soon as the children come, Lord, that will be motivation even for us. Then we will be determined. Then it's all for you, Lord, all for you. As soon as the kids are out of the house, it's so busy, it's so loud, it's so distracting. There's so many things to take the kids to, so many things to do. Lord, as soon as we're freed up, as soon as, it's, as, soon as the kids are gone, then it's, it's us, Lord. All for you, Lord. I surrender all then. As soon as retirement comes, Lord, this job, this career is more than I expected it to be way more consuming. Lord, as soon as retirement comes, it's me and you. 
What does Jesus say? Go and proclaim the kingdom. Go and proclaim the kingdom no matter what it might cost. I think the tension we feel here as we look through these three encounters is very revealing. We really do want a reasonable Savior. But Jesus is worthy. He demands, he demands full devotion. Nothing less will do. Lastly, we see this third encounter in verse 61. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And we're like, okay. Ah, this is the one. This is the one Jesus is like, of course, yes. Obviously, go back, embrace them, kiss them, and let them send you off. Maybe they'll have a going away, something, and then you're on with me. This is the one. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Maybe feeling things in our heart, like what is going on here? This guy just wants to say goodbye to his family, right? Jesus knows the man's heart. He knows his heart. He knows that his heart is divided. His words revealing that his family ties are too strong for him to break away. There's a divided heart here and Jesus responds to it. Later in this book of Luke, in Luke 14, 26, Jesus says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Let that sit with you. We don't like that verse. We always want something else right after. Tell me what that means. What does hate mean? Hate doesn't mean hate there, right? What does hate mean? Tell me what it means. Just let it sit. Jesus said that. He said that. He said other things like that. Why? Because he's worthy of that. He's worthy that when he says, unless you renounce all, you cannot be my disciple. He's worthy of that. The men who saw Jesus die and then saw him raised, and then saw him taken up into heaven, died for him. Gave their lives, living and dying for his glory. Why? Because they knew what we sometimes doubt. That he is absolutely worthy that we renounce everything. Jesus says to them, no, or to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Gives us a picture of a farmer, farmers then and still in some places today, 
would hook their plow up to an ox or oxen and pull, you know, see these oxen pulling the plow behind. And the farmer would, would fix his eyes at the end of the row where he's headed, where he's going. If the farmer looks back behind them, what happens to the row? It's crooked, right? Immediately, you look back, there's a crook in the road or in the row. And so the farmer stays fixed. Their face is set. It's fixed on where they're going. That's what Jesus is saying here. Anyone who who takes a hold of the plow, anyone who takes a hold of this life in Christ and looks back at what's behind them and what they're leaving behind longingly, it's not fit for the kingdom of God. The picture again reminds us of a story with Elijah. First Kings 19, as he calls Elisha to follow him. Chapter 19, beginning with verse 19. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. Sounds very familiar, right? But it's not the same. We see in the verse ahead, Elijah said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Elisha takes what he had to go back to and sacrifices them. The beautiful picture is very, very reminiscent of Matthew 13, 44, right? The king of heaven is like a man who finds treasure in a field, and his joy he goes and sells all that he has to get the field. That's what Elisha does. He goes and he, he sacrifices. He burns whatever it was that he would have gone back to. All of this oxen, all of this that, that, that would do the work for him. There's nothing to go back to. He's determined to follow and he's making the commitment that Jesus calls for here in Luke 9. If you notice in these two sections, verses 51 through 56 and then 57 through 62, we see these pictures, first of Elijah and the calling down of fire, and then in the second section, this uh, picture of Elisha and the, uh, the plow and looking back. And the picture is very clear for us. In the same way that Elisha followed Elijah, we are to follow Christ, renouncing all. Sacrificing all for Christ. Yes, the way is hard. We will suffer rejection. You're going to have to die to yourself. You're going to have to die to cultural expectations. You're going to have to die to your allegiances. You can't have a foot in both kingdoms. You can't look back longing for the old life. That's what Lot's wife did, right? Leaving wicked um, Sodom and looking back how could we 
Jesus deserves and demands our all. He's merciful. He does not treat us as we deserve. Just like the Samaritans, he shows us mercy. He offers us mercy. Mercy. And in his mercy, he calls us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. His mind is fully made up and he calls us to follow in the same way that we would set our face towards him. Each week we remember together and partake together of the body and blood of Jesus. We have this constant reminder, this purposeful reminder before us of his worth and what he accomplished in his mercy. And so as we partake of the bread and the cup, these symbols of his body that was broken, his blood that was poured out, displaying his mercy, calling down fire upon himself, not upon us, As we hold the bread and the cup, let's contemplate our own discipleship, our own following of Jesus. Have we gravitated toward a view that pushes away from Jesus' unreasonable call? Or do we see that though the way is hard, we have counted the cost and found that it is the most reasonable thing that we could possibly do to follow this great and merciful Savior, that he is worth it. Though it costs us our lives, because we know, we know that just as he set his face toward Jerusalem and suffered death, he also was glorified and taken to be at the right hand of the Father, and so we too, setting our face toward him, will be taken up to be with him forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace, Lord. You're so merciful, Lord. We deserve, we deserve for fire to come from heaven and consume us, Lord. But you set your face to Jerusalem and you called fire, the fire of your father's wrath to come down upon you. You bore his wrath for our sins. Your body was broken. We were let go, set free. Your blood was shed, our sins forgiven. And so, Lord, help us as we hold these symbols, the bread and the cup. Lord, help us to contemplate our own following. Lord, help us to see that you are so worthy. That you who did not hold back your own life, Lord, you are worthy of us giving our lives to and for. And would you help us, Lord, as we take and ponder the truths of the bread that your body was broken and the truths of the cup that your blood was poured out so that our sins would be forgiven. Would you help us as we ponder to rejoice? Would you search our hearts and reveal in any of us and all of us the ways that we are looking back longingly the ways that we are striving to have one foot in this kingdom and one foot in your kingdom. Would you help us to see where we have not denied ourselves? Would you help us to see if we are longing for this earth more than we are longing for you? Would you help us, Lord, to find our identity completely in you, in your grace and in your mercy Would you convict us of our sin, of our waywardness, Lord, of our looking back and 
Lord, draw us to yourself. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your mercy. We want to be those who follow, who have renounced all, who've taken up our cross, because we love you. In Christ's name, amen.